Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the Theapologetics Podcast, episode 35, Contradicting Words. Today we're going to look at some alleged contradictions in scripture, but first I just want to say how excited I am at the number of times last week's interview with Dr. James White was downloaded. In just the first 24 hours it, has been, it was downloaded over 200 times. Since then it's reached almost 500 downloads, which I'm pretty sure was only exceeded by episode 3 in which I interviewed Cy Ten Bruggenkate, which now has been downloaded over 650 times. Of course, that episode's been out for something like 8 months, so, <laughs> you know, last week's episode is sure to surpass it soon. To all of you new listeners who were turned on to my podcast by Dr. White's post at the Alpha and Omega Ministries blog, I just want to thank you so much for joining me, and I hope that you enjoy my show. Feel free to contact me at theapologetics at hotmail.com if you want to get in touch. Also, it looks like a few of you have been uh, have recently become fans of The Apologetics at Facebook, and I'm up, I'm up to 96 people besides myself who like the page. Uh, I'm putting like in quotes since Facebook has this like functionality. <laughs> so anyway, thanks so much for, for those of you who've done so. Now, I know for a fact that I can get to 100. Um, at least I, I think I'm pretty certain I can. So if any of you listening aren't fans of The Apologetics on Facebook already, would you consider searching Facebook for The Apologetics and clicking on my green logo and then clicking the like button? Uh, it'd mean a lot to me. I could throw my hands up in the air and cheer that I've got over 100 people that like my page. <laughs> now, for those of you who've been praying for me in my attempt to lose weight uh, for my upcoming powerlifting competition, thanks so much. It means a lot, and, and I would just ask you to please continue to do so. This past week has just been very uh, frustrating for me. In in those first two weeks, I lost about 13 pounds, and that was awesome. But this past thir- third week, I've lost a total of, get ready for it, 0.6 pounds. Yeah, that's right, less than a pound in a week. It doesn't seem to have mattered that I've been eating healthfully and exercising rigorous, uh, vigorously, and, you know, I'm just, I'm just not sure what's going on. I'm still ahead of where I'd need to be were I losing a steady amount of weight without variation until June 25th. But at this rate, it won't be long before I fall behind. You know, I I trust that God's got it under control, or at least I do on some level. And if I can only lose enough weight to compete in the weight class I've been competing in, that'll be okay. And I've only got a little over 10 pounds to go and, you know, four months to do it. But I'd really like to compete in the next weight class down. I'd be far more competitive at 242 than at 275. Um, so let's see, was there anything else I wanted to mention? I don't think so. So, uh, let's go ahead and play the next promo in my rotation, which is for my friend Phil Nason's What Color is the Sky in Their World? Hi, this is Phil Nason's from the blog and the podcast, What Color is the Sky in Their World? Formerly known as the Theology Today blog and podcast. It's a blog and podcast dealing with and examining issues that affect each and every one of us from a Christian perspective. You can find us at phillyflash.wordpress.com or at theologytoday.podbean.com. Thanks a lot. Phil over in Greece is a great guy and a friend I very much appreciate. At his blog and on his podcast, he discusses a number of interesting and important topics, and I definitely recommend you check him out. He recently published an episode on something called Church Team Ministries International, which is apparently a cult from Mauritius and whose leader cleverly but dishonestly manipulates young people to abandon their families, homes, and lives, ruining families. One day I'll have Phil on to discuss this cult, but in the meantime, you can learn about it at theologytoday.podbean.com or at phillyflash.wordpress.com, Phil's podcast and blog, respectively. With that, let's move into today's topic. In episode 7, Truth Be Told, we looked a little bit at the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, a topic we'll be discussing with Jamin Hubner from Real Apologetics next episode, uh, Lord willing anyway. 
And in episode 8, Walking Contradiction, we looked at several of what skeptics allege are contradictions in the Bible, which, if genuine, would demonstrate that the Bible is not inerrant and would cast doubt on its reliability. In that episode, we discovered that none of the alleged contradictions were, in fact, contradictions, and that skeptics are desperately grasping at straws, hoping to find some reason to justify their rejection of Scripture. Now, I had intended to do future episodes discussing such alleged contradictions, but I really didn't know which contradictions I would address and in what order, you know, those kinds of things. I thought that I'd just search for what I think are challenging ones and address whatever I could find. But not long ago, I stumbled upon what I think is a better plan. One of my best friends and a guest that I interviewed in episode 6 discussing Israelology, not long ago he attended a lecture given by a prominent atheist. I, I, I think that it was Sam Harris, but I could be wrong. Anyway, one of the things that Sam said is that is this claim that's often trumpeted by skeptics that the Bible is full of contradictions. And on the screen, he put up something my friend described as looking like a big orange rainbow, which was supposed to depict in, 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 a, in the form of a picture what this, what this issue of contradictions looks like. Some number of days later, uh, an atheist friend of mine posted a link to a document at Project Reason's website, a document entitled Contradictions in the Bible. Um, he posted a link to that on, on my Facebook page. It lists over 400 of what are allegedly contradictions in Scripture, uh, but it depicts them in a unique, a unique way, as a large orange rainbow, uh, in which an arc connects the passages which are allegedly uh, contradicting one another. It seems that this document is the one that Sam Harris put up on the screen for his audience and at least is well, well known enough for my atheist friend to have linked to it at my Facebook page. Now, in response to my friend, I started to go through these one by one on Facebook, but it dawned on me that perhaps it would be better to go through this list of alleged contradictions in my podcast. Uh, that way I've got it sort of recorded in, in permanent form so I can easily go back to it. And also I don't have to go searching for common contradictions to address. I can just go through this list. And Christians who are confronted with this list can follow my podcast to find out whether or not these are indeed contradictions. And, you know, you can point your skeptic friends to me as well. So today we're going to begin going through this list. You can find it at www.project-reason.org slash Bible Contra underscore big dot PDF. And don't worry if you missed that. I'll include a link in my show notes. We're going to go a little quickly through the first 13 listed here. So if you're on the road or working, just go ahead and listen for now. And then go back and listen a second time when you can look up the passages yourself and take notes. I think that you'll find that none of these stand up to scrutiny as genuine contradictions. And that the Bible remains the inerrant source of divine truth that it claims to be. Alright, so let's first look at number one on this list. Which reads, how many men did the chief of David's captains kill? And it says that 2 Samuel 23.8 doesn't equal 1 Chronicles 11.11. 2 Samuel 23.8 reads, These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. And then he mentions a name, and he says, Chief of the captains, he was called Adino the Esnite, because of 800 slain by him at one time. But 1 Chronicles 11.11 says, These constitute the list of the mighty men whom David had. And it lists that same person, apparently, calls him the chief of the 30, and says that he lifted up his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. So, which is it? Is it 800 or is it 300 that this uh, famous warrior killed? Now, it, I think that it needs to be noted first that this objection assumes one or more of the following. Uh, it assumes that such a famous warrior could only be well known for his single greatest feat, or it assumes that this warrior was well known by these two authors for the same event. Or, it assumes that this warrior performed so exceedingly well in only this one event, uh, for which he is apparently well known by both authors. Now, I want you to imagine this hypothetical story for a moment, and keep those assumptions in mind, okay? Um, imagine that there's a famous baseball player who's been playing ball for many years, he's accomplished a great many feats, played on a large number of very amazing games. And let's say that in one of uh, these famous games, he manages to hit three home runs in a single game. And in another very famous game, either years earlier or years later, it really doesn't matter, he hits eight home runs in a single game. Now both are obviously very tremendous accomplishments, and he's likely to be well known for both. But imagine that you've got two different fans of this baseball player. One who was there to see the game in which the ball player hit three home runs, um, but who isn't aware of the game in which he had hit eight home runs. And then you've got another fan who is aware of this eight home run game. 
Now, if you were to go to these two fans and ask them what the player is famous for, you're likely to get two different answers, and yet they're not contradicting, contradicting each other. Uh, the ball player is indeed well known for his amazing three home run game, but he's also very well known for his eight home run game. The fact that two people attribute his fame to different games is not a contradiction, it's merely a difference of perspective. Now take this hypothetical story and apply it to this warrior in Samuel and Chronicles. Uh, th this kind of a well-known warrior is probably known for a number of great accomplishments. And what if in one very famous battle he killed 300 men, and in another one he killed 800 men? Is it possible that one author might be familiar with the former battle but not the latter? And if that's the case, wouldn't you expect that the author would attribute the warrior's fame to the battle in which he killed 300 men, the one that he was familiar with? But the other author, who was familiar with the other battle, would probably have attributed his fame to that one? I think it makes perfect sense, and this is a very plausible explanation for the apparent discrepancy. Now, of course, skeptics are going to object, insisting that it's obvious the two authors are contradicting each other, but there's no evidence of that in the text, no justification for assuming the things that I mentioned earlier. Uh, namely, that a warrior couldn't be well-known for multiple feats and, and that uh, the authors couldn't be referring to different feats. So in the absence of evidence like that, and given the many reasons we have for believing the Bible to be God-breathed, this explanation, it, it seems more likely. But there is a second possibility, and it must be understood that the doctrine of biblical inerrancy doesn't say that the copies of the original manuscripts are without error. It only says that the originals are inerrant. So therefore, it's possible that the occasional mistake was made by copyists down through the centuries. Indeed, as a result of modern textual criticism, even in theologically conservative circles, um, we're, we're aware of several of these kinds of copyist errors. Uh, these errors constitute a tiny minority of the text and never seriously impact the meaning, so the Bible's still amazingly reliable. But one kind of mistake a copyist might have made is to incorrectly, uh, incorrectly transcribe a number. So it could be that originally both of these accounts were referring to the same event and gave the same number of men, either 300 or 800, either one. From what I can gather, the numbers 300 and 800 look very similar in the original text. Both of them start with the same Hebrew letter, and the two or three additional letters could appear very similar as well. So it's possible that a scribe copying Samuel mistook 300 for 800, or that a scribe copying Chronicles mistook 800 for 300, and hence the discrepancy. If this is what happened, it still casts no doubt on the reliability or inerrancy of Scripture, and while it may be a contradiction in the copies, it certainly is not a contradiction in the original text. Either way, skeptics are on loose footing when they point to this alleged contradiction. So that's, that's one down. Let's move on to number two. Was Abraham justified by faith or by works? Uh, Romans 4.2 does not equal James 2.21, according to this document. Uh, Romans 4.2 reads, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God, uh, implying that Abraham wasn't justified by works. Uh, James 2.21 says, Abraham our father was justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar. So, which, which is the case? Was Abraham justified by faith, or was he justified by works? Now, this alleged contradiction, you know, it's certainly been the source of controversy amongst theologians over the centuries, but skeptics are really unjustified in claiming it as a contradiction, and they really should leave it to the theologians. This actually is, is a quite simple one. And skeptics who point to this alleged contradiction must assume one or both of these two things. That either the Greek word rendered justified has only one possible meaning or that both authors mean the same thing when they talk about Abraham's justification. So let's take a look and see if these assumptions are justified. <laughs> Ironically, the word translated justified uh, is a Greek word dikai-a-o, and just like numerous Greek words, and of course just like many English words today, the word has multiple meanings. One meaning of the word is to be rendered, declared, or pronounced righteous. But another meaning of the word is to demonstrate that one is righteousness, to, to exhibit righteousness. So in Romans 4, Paul explains what he means when he talks about Abraham's justification. He says in verse 3 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He says in verse 5 that to the one who does not work, his faith is credited as righteousness. And in verse 6 he says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So it's clear that what Paul means when he uses the word justified is, is that he's talking about being reckoned as righteous um, and having one's sins forgiven. But James 2, on the other hand, um, in, in that passage, James has a different meaning in mind. 
Verse 23 is enough to demonstrate that James sees Abraham as having been declared righteous for his faith alone, just like Paul did, because he also says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So that alone tells us that James and Paul are not contradicting uh, one another. And, and all we've got to do is look a bit more closely to figure out what's going on. Notice he asks in verse 14, can that faith save him? Or as some translations rightfully render it, can that kind of faith save anyone? He goes on in verse 17 to say that faith, if it has no works, is dead. So the question I have for you is, what is the problem with a person who lacks works? Why is such a person's salvation apparently being called into question here? Because a lack of works suggests that one's faith is dead or inanimate or useless or inactive. In other words, the problem with a lack of works is that it demonstrates that a professed faith is not genuine. This is why he says in verse 18, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. You show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Read that again. He says, show you my faith by my works. So what is the purpose of the works here? It's to demonstrate the reality of the faith. So in its context, when James says that Abraham was justified by works, he doesn't mean that Abraham was declared righteous and forgiven of sin as a result of his works. No, no, he expressly says otherwise in verse 23. Rather, he's saying that Abraham demonstrated the genuineness of his faith by his works. His true faith is what saved him, but true faith results in works which demonstrate the reality of faith. So no, skeptics are not justified in claiming this is a contradiction. The word dikaio has multiple meanings, and not only is it clear that each author has a different meaning in mind, but both authors expressly agree that Abraham's belief is what resulted in his being reckoned righteous. Let's move on to number three. How many sons did Abraham have? Uh, it says that Hebrews 11.17 and Genesis 22.2 don't equal Genesis 16.15, 21.2-3, 25.1-2, to 3, 25, 1-2, and 4.22. So here, here are those passages. Hebrews 11.17 says basically that uh, Abraham offered up um, his only begotten son. And Genesis 22 says that, uh, that uh, Abraham was told to take his only son and to offer him up. Offer him up. So Hebrews 11.17 and Genesis 22.2 seem to say that Abraham had only one son. Uh, but on the other hand, Genesis 6, in Genesis 16.15, Abraham uh, has Ishmael, fathers Ishmael. And in Genesis 25.1 and 2, Abraham takes another wife who bears to him other sons. Okay. So what the skeptic is saying is that some passages seem to say that Abraham had one and only one son, but other passages seem to suggest he had other sons. But here's the thing, this, this one is really silly, and quite frankly, any skeptic who tries to point to this as an example of a contradiction in scripture should be ashamed of his own intellectual dishonesty. We as believers should be bolstered and encouraged in our faith in the reliability of scripture when we see skeptics so desperately cling to alleged contradic uh, contradictions like these, because it really says a lot about the weakness of their position and the strength of ours. Think about this very carefully. You know, you know what? Actually, no, you don't even have to think about it that carefully. Just give it a little bit of thought, and you'll see how absurd this allegation is. The skeptic is alleging that in Genesis 16 and 25, the author depicts other sons being born to Abraham. But in between, in chapter 22, the author says Abraham had only one son. <laughs> uh, I'm a fan of Saturday Night Live, and uh, Seth and Amy, when they used to do Weekend Update, they had a segment that was sometimes called, Really? And, and I want to I ask the skeptic who brings this up, Really? <laughs> because you see, it's really the height of absurdity to think that the author is so stupid that he would in chapter 16 depict the birth of Ishmael, to, to his father Abraham, and then in chapter 22 say that Isaac was the only son Abraham ever had, only to go back in chapter 25 and again say that Abraham had multiple sons. Obviously, that's idiotic, and it's readily apparent that we will likely only need to look a little more closely to see what's going on. So let's start with Hebrews 11.17. The word rendered only begotten is the Greek word monogenes, which doesn't mean only one begotten to. It means unique or one of a kind. Isaac was the child God had promised to Abraham. Yes, Abraham had Ishmael before Isaac and other sons after, but none of these were the sons, uh, or was the son, which had been promised to Abraham. So therefore, Isaac was indeed Abraham's one-of-a-kind son. Second, in chapter 22, yes, God tells Abraham to offer up his only son, but look what happened a mere chapter earlier. 
In chapter 21, Abraham basically disowns Ishmael, sending him and his mother Hagar away. In fact, he does so in response to Sarah, who had said, The son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And God says to Abraham to listen to Sarah and do whatever she says. So by sending Ishmael away, Abraham was disowning Ishmael, who would no longer have an inheritance. And it's not until chapter 25 that Abraham has his other sons, as pointed to by the skeptics. Which means that at the time that he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, in, in chapter 22, uh, Abraham truly did have only one son, Isaac, because Ishmael was no longer his son, and he had not yet fathered his other sons. So it's really very clear and obvious. And as I said, uh, that skeptics so desperately cling to it really says a lot about the bankruptcy of their position. Let's move on to number four. Was Abiathar the father or the son of Ahimelech? And then it says that 1 Samuel 22.20 doesn't equal, or sorry, 1 Samuel 22.20 and 23.6 don't equal 2 Samuel 8.17, 1 Chronicles 18.16 or 24.6. So here, here are some of those passages. Um, 1 Samuel 22.20 says, But one son of Ahim, Ahimelech, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And then 1 Samuel 23.6 also says that Abiathar is the son of Ahimelech. But 2 Samuel 8.17 says this, it says, Zadok the son of Ahitub and Ahimelech the son of Abiathar were priests. And First Chronicles 18.16 and First Chronicles 24.6 also seem to suggest that uh, Abiathar was the father of Ahimelech, not the son. Now here's yet another example of a really silly attempt by skeptics to cast doubt on the reliability of the scriptures. You see, this allegation hangs on the assumption that the Ahimelech of 1 Samuel 22.20 and 23.6 is the same Ahimelech of 2 Samuel 8.17, 1 Chronicles 18.16, and 24.6. If there's reason to believe that these passages are talking about a different man named Ahimelech, then the whole allegation falls apart. And indeed, as we're going to see, that's the case here. In 1 Samuel 22, King Saul commanded the guards to kill Ahimelech, all his household, and all the priests. Verse 18 says that some 85 priests were killed, and verse 20 says that only Abiathar, Ahimelech's son, escaped to tell David, who then lets Ahimelech stay with him in safety. And then chapter 23 goes on to talk about how David went to Calah to fight with the Philistines, and then when faced with an ambush by Saul, he calls on Abiathar, again, the Abiathar whose father Ahimelech had been killed not long before, um, resulting in David's escape from Saul. But now look at this. The book of 2 Samuel begins as follows. Now it came about after the death of Saul. Did you catch that? In 1 Samuel 22 and 23, when Abiathar's father Ahimelech is killed, David is being pursued by Saul. But 2 Samuel begins with Saul dead. And sometime later we get to chapter 8 where it says uh, Ahimelech the son of Abiathar was a priest. Clearly, Although the Abiathar of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel may be the same person, there's no reason to believe that Ahimelech referred to in both those places as the same person, and that the author of 1 and 2 Samuel uh, somehow got them mixed up. No, Abiathar's father Ahimelech was killed back in 1 Samuel 22, and only Abiathar escaped. But many years later, by the time we reach 2 Samuel 8, Abiathar has had a son, and has named him after his father Ahimelech. Where does First Chronicles 18 fit in, though? Second Samuel 8 begins with, Now after this it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. First Chronicles 18 begins almost identically. It says, After this it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and took Gath and its towns from the hand of the Philistines. And then both passages go on to describe David defeating the Moabites and the king of Zobah. In other words, 1 Chronicles 18 is not talking about Ahimelech and Abiathar in the time of 1 Samuel 22, when Abiathar's father Ahimelech was killed. Instead, it's talking about the time of 2 Samuel 8, when Abiathar had a son he named after his murdered father. And of course, uh, 1 Chronicles 24 comes after that. So again, in their desperate attempt to justify the rejection of scripture, Skeptics reveal the bankruptcy of their position by claiming that these passages contradict one another, when in fact it's very clear that after Ahimelech's murder, his son Abiathar later had a son, which he apparently named after his father. And of course, that's a common practice to this day. So there's really no contradiction here. Let's move on to number five. Who was Abijam's mother? It says that 1 Kings 15, 1 and 2 doesn't equal 2 Chronicles 13, 1 and 2. 
So let's look at those. First Kings 15, 1 and 2 reads, Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Ma'akah, the daughter of Abishalom. So uh, that passage seems to suggest that uh, Ma'akah, daughter of Abishalom, was Abijam's mother. But Second Chronicles 13, 1-2 says, In the eighteenth year of King Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Um, so that passage, instead of saying that Ma'akah, daughter of Abishalom, was Abijam's mother, this passage instead says Micaiah, the daughter of Uri Uriel, man, these names are hard to pronounce, <laughs> uh, was his mother. Now, so I'll admit that in this case, I can see why the skeptics think it's a contradiction, at least because they, at least given that they don't want to do their homework. First, First Kings 15, 1 and 2 definitely seems to say that Abijam's mother was Ma'akah, daughter of Abishalom, and Second Chronicles 13 definitely seems to contradict that. But it doesn't take more than a little bit of digging to see why this isn't the contradiction skeptics allege it is. And if they were interested in the truth, they would do their homework, and they would see the same thing. But as it is, they aren't interested in the truth, and, uh, which is why they reject the Bible. We, however, do care about the truth, so let's take a closer look. First, it should be noted that the fact that the author of Kings calls the woman Ma'akah, while the author of Chronicles calls her Micaiah, is not a contradiction. It is, in fact, the same woman, referred to using slightly different names, which is frequent throughout these books. The authors had already done that with her son, one calling him Abijam and the other calling him Abijah. Um, so the authors aren't referring to two different women, and they're not contradicting each other in that regard. But what about First Kings saying that Ma'akah was the daughter of Ab Abishalom, whereas Second Chronicles calls her the daughter of Uriel? Well, in order to claim this is a contradiction, skeptics must assume that both authors are referring to Ma'akah's father. They're justified, I think, in ruling out her mother, um, since both Abishalom and Uriel appear to be men's names. But the Hebrew word rendered daughter, bat, while ordinarily meaning daughter, can also mean any female descendant, like a granddaughter. So it is possible that Ma'akah was the daughter of either Abishalom or Uriel, and the granddaughter of the other. Now, Abishalom is another name for Absalom, who, according to First Chronicles 3, was one of David's sons by uh, Ma'akah, another Ma'akah. Verse 9 tells us that Absalom had a sister named Tamar, and Second Samuel 14.27 says that Absalom had three unnamed sons and a daughter, which he apparently named after his sister, Tamar. It seems Absalom's sons were unnamed because they all died, and in fact, in 2 Samuel 18.18, he sets up a monument for himself, saying, I have no son to preserve my name. So Uriel could not be Absalom's son, but there's no reason to rule out Uriel as Tamar's husband, Absalom's son-in-law. First Kings, then, may be saying that Ma'akah's grandfather was Abishalom, or Absalom, whose daughter Tamar married Uriel which Second Chronicles may be calling Micaiah's father. Since skeptics have no justification for assuming that both authors were giving the identity of Ma'akah's father, the possibility that Absalom was her grandfather and that Uriel was her father is enough to dismiss this as a contradiction. Or at least, to, uh, it's, it's enough to explain it as not being a contradiction. That's what I mean to say. So let's move on to number six. How were Abijam and Asa related? Uh, the document says that 1 Kings 15.8 doesn't equal 1 Kings 15.1-2 or 1 Kings 15.9-10. Let's read those really quick. 1 Kings 15.8 says, Abijam slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his son, became king in his place. So this passage seems to be saying that Abijam is Asa's father. But 1 Kings 15.1-2 says, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam, became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Ma'akah, the daughter of Abishalom. And then verses 9 to 10 of that same chapter go on to say that Asa began to reign as king of Judah. He reigned for 41 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Ma'akah, the daughter of Abishalom. Did you, did you see that? Uh, both Abijam and Asa are apparently called the, are, are apparently both said to be the son of their mother, Ma'akah. Um, and yet Asa is said to be Abijam's son. Now, whereas I can understand why skeptics who choose not to do their research might point to the previous passage that we looked at as a contradiction, this one really is absurd. Again, a skeptic who points to this as a contradiction is basically arguing that the same author in the same book, in the same chapter, contradicts himself in the span of a mere ten verses. 
This alone should suggest that there is no contradiction here and that a slightly closer look should easily reveal a solution to the problem, but, you know, as we've seen, skeptics aren't interested in the truth, and so they're not going to take a close look, and they're instead going to continue to desperately cling to any reason, no matter how poor, uh, to reject the Bible. And again, this should tell us something about the nature of their skepticism. Uh, skepticism. So we'll go ahead and, and take the closer look that the skeptics are unwilling to take. Now, yes, verse 2 says Abijam's mother was Ma'aka, and verse 10 says Asa's mother was Ma'aka also, seemingly contradicting uh, verse 8, which says Asa was Abijam's son. Now, assuming Abijam didn't sleep with his own mother, <laughs> and, and that Asa is not both Abijam's son and his brother, how can this not be a contradiction? Well, it's actually quite easy. The Hebrew word rendered mother is aim, and can refer not just to a mother, but to a grandmother. Ma'aka was Abijam's mother, and since Asa was Abijam's son, of course, Ma'aka was Asa's grandmother. It's ridiculous to suggest that the author contradicted himself in just a mere few verses, so this is the likeliest explanation. There simply is no contradiction. That brings us to number seven. How long was the Ark of the Covenant at Abinadab's house? The document says that 1 Samuel 7, 1-2 and 10:24 don't equal 2 Samuel 6, 2-3 and Acts 13, 21. Now this one might be a little hard to follow, so you know, listen carefully. 1 Samuel 7, 1-2 reads this way, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So that passage seems to suggest that the ark was at Abinadab's house for twenty years. And for Samuel 10, 24, uh, says that sometime later, uh, Saul is made king. And that'll, that'll become important in a moment. Now, Second Samuel 6, 2-3 says, David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Now, I don't know why I had to read that whole thing. I really didn't. The point here is that it was David who um, who went went to get the ark. But Acts 13.21 says, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. Now think about this for a second. The, the, the first passage we looked at said that the ark was in Abinadab's house for twenty years. And that it was some time after that that Saul was made king. And then for 40 years, apparently, Acts 13.21 seems to suggest that Saul was king for 40 years, after which point David becomes king, and only after that does David go and find the ark. So it would seem to suggest that the ark was at Abinadab's house for more than 40 years. Now, I'll admit that this is another alleged contradiction which has at least a hint of some merit, unlike most of the ones that we've looked at so far. But I think we're going to see a closer look reveals no contradiction at all. Because the skeptic's argument relies upon the assumption that 1 Samuel 7 says that the ark remained at the house of Amidadab for 20 years total before being removed. But this assumption is easily refuted. 1 Samuel 7.2 doesn't say the ark was at Amidadab's house for a total of 20 years. It says 20 years passed after it was placed there before the house of Israel lamented. And the passage goes on to say nothing about what happened to the ark at that point. So the ark remains at Amidadab's house for 20 years, and then Israel laments, and the ark remains there for some unspecified amount of time until, according to 2 Samuel 6, David comes and gets it. That unspecified amount of time could certainly be greater than the amount of time required for Saul to become king and reign for 40 years, if that's what Acts 13.21 is saying. So once again, <clears throat> there just is no contradiction here. So let's move on to number 8. How old was Abram when Ishmael was born? The document says that Genesis 16:16 16, 16 doesn't equal Acts 7:2-4, Genesis 11:26 or 11:32. So let's let's take a look at those. Genesis 16:16 16, 16 says Abram Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Okay, so how old was Abraham when Ishmael was born? 86, according to that passage. But look at these other passages. Acts 7:2-4 says that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From, uh, Haran. from there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. 
Okay, so that's important. Uh, the author of uh, the, the, uh, this this portion of Acts is saying that a, that Abram didn't leave Haran until his father died. Okay, now Genesis eleven twenty six says that Terah, that's Abram's father, lived seventy years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And then Genesis eleven thirty two says the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and and Terah died in Haran. So, so do the math. Genesis twelve four says Abraham was seventy five when he left Haran. Uh, Genesis sixteen three says he was in Canaan for ten years when Hagar was given to him. That's eighty five plus a year to conceive and bear Ishmael. So the author of Genesis seems to be consistent. But Acts seven seems to say that Abraham didn't leave Haran until his father died, which according to Genesis eleven happened some hundred thirty five years after Abraham was born. So was he was Abraham eighty six year old or was he, was he over one hundred and thirty five when he when he gave um, when he had Ishmael? Well, first recall that in a few examples we've looked at already, the skeptics are alleging something pretty preposterous that an author contradicted himself in the span of a mere few verses. Okay. Now, when an author seems to contradict himself in such a short span of writing, we ought to assume that the author knew what he was doing, and we should expect that he didn't contradict himself, but rather that we just need to seek to correctly understand what the author was actually saying. Now, it might seem that this isn't the case with this alleged contradiction, since the skeptic is appealing to Acts 7. But a closer look reveals that if there is, in fact, a contradiction, then the author of these passages in Genesis contradicts himself in the span of just a few verses. In other words, we don't even need to bring Acts 7 into the equation to see what seems like a possible contradiction. You see, in Genesis 11.26, the author seems to suggest that Terah bore Abram at 70 years old. And then in verse 32 suggests that Terah died at 205 when Abraham was 135. But if that's the case, why would the author, just a mere four verses later, say that after Terah's death, Abraham departed from Haran at 75? Skeptics seem to think that every author from antiquity was a buffoon, uh, a moron, accustomed to contradicting himself at every turn in, in the span of just a few verses. But we who are reasonable, unlike the skeptics, should take this as a hint that the author knew what he was writing. So if the author didn't contradict himself, himself what is the solution to this apparent problem? Well, if you read Genesis 11, starting in verse 10, you'll see a pattern. And this pattern is kind of comprised of what I see as three elements. First, a father is said to have lived a certain amount of time, at which point he has a son. Okay. Second, some number of years after the birth of that son, the father dies. And then third, the father is said to have had other sons and daughters. So in verses 10 and 11, Shem has our Pakshad at 100, dies 500 years later, during which time he had other sons and daughters. Verses 12 and 13 say our Pakshad has Shalah at 35, dies 403 years later, and had other sons and daughters during that time. Verses 15 and six, uh, 14 and 15 say Shalah had Eber at 30 years, died 403 years later, and had other sons and daughters, and so on and so forth. But this pattern is suddenly broken when we get to Terah in verse 26. First, the author doesn't name only the firstborn, but names all three sons of Terah. And we don't know which of them was born first when Terah was 70 years uh, was seventy years old. Second, the author doesn't say that Terah died X number of years after the birth of Y. So we still don't know which of his sons was the firstborn and, 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 and how long after his birth that person died. Third, the author doesn't say Terah had other sons and daughters, and so had the author continued the pattern... His firstborn son would have been named, but the other two would have been included in the other sons and daughters portion. Again, we don't know which of the three was born first. What this means is that we don't really know how old Terah was when he fathered Abraham. We know that he was 70 when he gave birth to either Abram, not when he gave birth, but you know, when he fathered Abram, Nahor, or Haran. But which one specifically was born when he was 70, we just don't know. Now, since the author of Genesis was probably not a mindless dolt, it's unlikely that he contradicted, contradicted himself in the span of just a few verses. The likelier explanation is that either Nahor or Haran was born when Terah was 70, but Abram was born some time later, 75 years before Terah's death, as indicated by the next chapter. Here's how John Gill put it, commenting on this passage. He said, Abram, though named first, does not appear to be the eldest, but rather Haran. 
Nay, it seems pretty plain that Abram was not born until 130th year of his father's life, for Terah was 205 years old when he died, and Abram was but 75 years of age when he went out from Haran to Canaan. And that was as soon as his father died there, so that if 75 are taken out of 205, there will remain 130, in which year, and not before, Abram must be born. Now, John Gill is just basically saying, this, saying the same thing that I just did, uh, that this isn't a contradiction because it's not Abram who was born when Terah was 70. So he did, in fact, father Ishmael when he was 86, just like Genesis 16 says. Now, we would move on to number nine on the list, but it's it asks the exact same question as number seven. <laughs> Uh, it seems that the skeptics not only desperately cling to very poor allegations of contradictions in the Bible, but in their desperation, they also fail to proofread their documents critical of it. So let's move on to number 10. When did Absalom rebel against David? It says 2 Samuel 15.7 doesn't equal 2 Samuel 5.4. Here are those passages. Second Samuel 15:7 reads, Now it came about at the end of forty years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. So that would be at the end of forty years. But Second Samuel 5:4 says David was thirty years old when he became king and he reigned forty years. So, so uh, David's reign should have ended before Absalom rebelled, if Absalom rebelled after 40 years, but David's reign only lasted 40 years. Okay. Now, in some of the previous examples we've looked at, skeptics appeared to be making the absurd claim that an author contradicted himself in a very short span of verses. In this case, the distance between the seemingly contradictory verses is, is somewhat larger, but it still seems unlikely that the author contradicted himself within the same book, a mere 10 chapters apart. Is it possible, then, that there's an alternative explanation? Well, indeed, there is such a possibility that this is a scribal error. You see, the numbers 40 and 4 are very similar in the original Hebrew. And according to one website I found, the Syriac and Arabic versions of the Old Testament do indeed read 4, not 40. And the NASB includes a footnote on this verse saying that some ancient versions render 4. So it may be that earlier, uh, early copyists introduced this error, whereas the original may have read 4 and have been inerrant. No contradiction in the original text. Number 11, the two contradictory creation accounts. I'm not going to go too deep in this one. Um, they basically cite one contradiction out of what are actually many that are typically alleged. Uh, they quote Genesis 1, 25 to 27, which says that God created beasts, uh, beasts of the field and then cattle and then ground creepers and then finally man. Whereas in Genesis 2, 18 to 22, God creates man followed by beasts and birds and then, fo and then finally woman. Okay. Now, I addressed this in episode 8 of my podcast, Walking Contradiction. Chapters 1 and 2, here's the important thing to note. Chapters 1 and 2 are not two separate creation accounts. I know everybody says that they are, but you take a close look and it becomes pretty clear to me that they're not. You see, chapter 1 is a high-level view of the creation, not just of the earth and, and all the life on it, but the sun, the moon, the stars, the atmosphere, the ocean, dry land, and so so forth, all of which isn't even mentioned in chapter 2. This, this alone should hint that these are not two different accounts of creation, since chapter 2 is missing some of these important details, if that's what its purpose was. Instead, chapter 2 seems to zoom in, geographically speaking, on, uh, into the garden, and temporarily speaking, into day 6. God had created all the animals, and then he creates the garden, and then places man there. He then brings animals to Adam, which he had already created earlier. He, he brings them to him to be named, and finding no suitable helper, he creates woman. It's not two contradictory accounts. It's one account of all six days and then and the creation of the universe, followed by a second account specifically of day six and the goings-on in the garden. It's not a contradiction. They're complementary. If you want more details, go listen to episode eight. That brings us to number 12. Who was Achan's father? It says that Joshua 7.1 doesn't equal Joshua 7.24 or 22.20. Here are those passages. Joshua 7.1 says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, Achan the son of Carmi, Carmi, man, I'm horrible at this, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban, therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So Joshua 7.1 seems to say that uh, Achan was the son of Carmi. But, but Joshua 7.24 
says, Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, etc., etc., um, and brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua 22.20 says, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things out of the ban? Uh, so, whereas Joshua 7.1 seems to say that Carmi, or Carmi, is the father of Achan, uh, Joshua 7.24 and 22.20 seem to suggest it's Zerah. Notice, once again, that skeptics are citing the same author in the same book, and again, in the same chapter. The notion that the author has contradicted contradict himself in such a short span, of, short span of time is, again, ridiculous. Again, what does it say about skeptics who point to this and similar passages as alleged contradictions? It shows that they're desperately seeking justification for rejecting the Bible. Read verse 1 again. It says, uh, it says, Akan's father was Carmi, whose father was Zabdi, whose father was Zerah. Zerah is Achan's great-grandfather. And the Hebrew word that's rendered son is Bain, and while perhaps usually meaning son, it can also mean male descendant. So Joshua 7.1 says that Achan's father is Carmi, whose grandfather was Zerah. And that's all Joshua 7.24 and 22.20 are saying. Achan, the descendant of Zerah, his great-grandfather. Again, no contradiction. Now we're going to look at one more today, and then uh, in a future episode we'll pick up uh, from where we left off. And we're going to end today with number 13. How many of Aden's offspring returned from Babylon? Okay, And they say that Ezra 2.15 doesn't equal Nehemiah 7.20. Ezra 2.15 says, uh, says that the sons of Aden were 454. But Nehemiah 7.20 says that the sons of Aden numbered 655. Now this would seem is a blatant uh, contradiction, and, and I'll admit that I, I think that skeptics are um, uh, justified in at least seeing this initially as a contradiction. And in fact, there are several uh, listing of numbers that disagree, uh, that, that seemingly contradict each other between the record in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read what some commentators have said of these passages in general, because I think that their explanation is sound um, and resolves the, the apparent discrepancy. Okay, so we're going to start with Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, and, and they comment on uh, Ezra 2, um, one of the other listing of numbers. Um, verse 5, where it says that the children of Arah were 770 and 5. They write that the number is stated in Nehemiah 7.10 to have only been 652. It is probable that all mentioned as belonging to this family repaired to the general place of rendezvous or had enrolled their names at first as intending to go, but in the interval of preparation some died, others were prevented by sickness or insurmountable obstacles, so that ultimately no more than 652 came to Jerusalem. John Wesley makes the same note. He says in, in Nehemiah 7.10 they were only 652. It seems 775 marched out of Babylon, but some of them died, others were hindered by sickness or other casualties, and so there came only 652 to Jerusalem. And the like is to be said in the like differences, which it suffices to hint once for all. So what, what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, and what John Wesley are saying is that the reason that some of these numbers disagree between Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7 is because the number of people that started the trek or that gathered to, to make their, um, their to, to leave was not the same as the number that arrived because of deaths and sicknesses and other things. J, uh, J, F, and B go on to comment on Nehemiah, saying, It is transcribed in the following verses and differs in some few particulars from that given in Ezra 2. But the discrepancy is sufficiently accounted for from the different circumstances in which the two registers were taken, that of Ezra having been made up at Babylon, while that of Nehemiah was drawn out in Judea after the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. The lapse of so many years might well be expected to make a difference appear in the catalog through death or other causes, in particular one person being, according to Jewish custom, called by different names. John Gill uh, also he comments similarly writing this, From hence to the end of Nehemiah uh, 769, the same account is given of persons and families as there, with some little difference of numbers and names. In some instances there are more in this list and others fewer, which may be thus accounted for. That list was made into Babylon, that, that list referring to Ezra's. When, upon the Edict of Cyrus, the Jews, who intended to go up with Zerubbabel, gave in their names, and they were registered. But this, that is Nehemiah's list, was made when they came to Jerusalem. 
Now some of those that gave in their names changed their minds and tarried in Babylon, and some might die by the way, which makes the numbers fewer in some instances. And others who did not give in their names at first, but, being better disposed toward their own country, followed after, and joined those which were returning, and increased the number of others. To which may be added what Abendana observes, that in Ezra an account is given of those that came out of the captivity by the companies in which they came not genealogized, and had a mixture of persons of other families in them, and some that had no genealogy. But afterwards, when they were genealogized according to their families, a register of their genealogies was made, and is what Nehemiah now found and here gives. And as for differences of names that may be owing to the carelessness of copiers or to the different pronunciation of names, if some men might have two names, the matter is of no great moment. So uh, the point here uh, is that the, there was a register taken by Ezra when the Israelites were leaving Babylon. And another register was taken uh, that's recorded in Nehemiah, which was taken when uh, in the time of Judah several years after they left Babylon. The amount of time that passed in between would have been plenty enough time for some people to die, others to decide that they don't want to leave Babylon, others to decide that they do, whereas having formally said that they don't, and so on and so forth. And so it, it's perfectly reasonable to expect that the numbers are going to be slightly different between um, the time of their leaving Babylon and the time of their uh, uh, residing in Judah. There's no contradiction, just a different time at which the numbers were recorded. It's that simple. All right, so that takes care of the first 13 of what Project Reason alleges are contradictions in the Bible. And none of them, not a single one of them, has stood up to scrutiny. In most cases, skeptics who point to these ought really to be ashamed of their lack of intellectual honesty, or at, little, at the least are otherwise being unreasonable in their desperate attempt to find a reason to reject the authority of Scripture. And in the few cases where the skeptic might be justified in at least initially assuming they found a contradiction, just a slightly closer look reveals that there is no such contradiction, and at worst all they've identified are errors in the copying process, which casts no doubt on the reliability of the Bible. Now I'll confess that I'm made a little nervous by the prospect of going through the over 400 alleged contradictions which remain, but, <laughs> you know, the thing is, if they're anything like the ones we've looked at today, I don't have a thing to worry about. So thanks for listening and stay tuned for a future episode when we continue through this list and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast in which I've got plans to interview Jamin Hubner from realapologetics.org to discuss the doctrine of inerrancy in greater detail. Until then... Yeah.